Hello and buongiorno from Italy. My name is Bailey Alexander and I'm here with Francis. We're coming at you from Lake Garda. And we're here to follow up on part one of Elon Musk, the disruptor. We'll also talk about Europe and, uh, and Maloney, Georgia Maloney as well. In our last podcast, we discussed how Musk is getting ready to leverage his companies. This guy who's been referred to as part Steve Jobs, part Willy Wonka, part Richard Branson, part Trump, part I could not care less what anyone thinks kind of guy. Certainly one of the biggest disruptors on the planet. First he did it in the financial industry, then the automotive and space, and it would appear next on his agenda is the telecommunications industry. And that's just his day job. So Francis, being a fellow engineer and certainly a risk taker, albeit on a smaller level, but a fellow traveler nonetheless, and he helps expose the mindset behind the guy with not one or two or three, but four unicorns. So today we're going to briefly follow up with what we can now safely perceive as Musk's next goal on Twitter, how he's going to democratize this space that leaves the legacy media in the dust as far as speed, so to speak. So anyway, hey, what say you, Francis? He's doing some pretty unique things. It's hard to see how the Twitter acquisition is a good business decision considering it costs him $44 billion. But having said that, what he's doing is very interesting. With the release of the Twitter files, what he's doing is he's publicizing the interactions that happen behind the scenes in efforts to suppress information and or moderate the information. And he's the only platform that's doing that at the moment. So what he's trying to do is he's trying to partially democratize, but he's trying to create a trust as a service for news. He already has the advantage with Twitter that it's the fastest media happening in literally seconds and crowdsource. So people would tend naturally to go to it for news, provided that they could actually believe what they're reading is unfiltered and, and able, you know, full of information right, right from the source. And he's essentially um, creating that. I mean, he's, he's making it so that the processes for banning and or filtering information, which do need to exist, are very transparent and open and crowdsource driven. So that will basically, hopefully, according, you know, basically his hope is that it will improve the trust. And he's also hired strong independent journalists like Matt Taibbi to lend their credibility to that effort, which is which is very interesting. And at the end of the day, he's going to have a platform that's instantaneous and he hopes will be trusted for disseminating news, which is something that you know everybody wants to consume. The jury's out on whether it'll work or not, but it's a, certainly a very interesting attempt. Yeah, I think one of the key takeaways for Taibi was the major revelation. Um, they discovered a vast bureaucracy of what you might call public and private censorship. I mean, Twitter has a system that has tens of thousands of requests from DHS, the, the FBI, just a dozen agencies, the Treasury, the DOD, and the CIA. They send lists of accounts and Excel spreadsheets and ask for actions. And in many cases, Twitter was compliant. So it, I think it surprised Taibi the extent of the bureaucracy. Yeah, I mean, Musk is trying to create something different. But the, at the end of the day, Matt Taibbi should not have been surprised that the government is involved in trying to control the narrative. 
The government has been trying to control the narrative literally forever. Newspapers back when things were scribbled on papyrus or chiseled into marble, right? Governments have always tried to control the narrative because in the past, that was the only way people could get information. You know, the printing press invented by Gutenberg basically means that somebody has to publish it, which means it can be edited. And it's always going to have editorial spin. You know, left-wing paper will write a left-wing thing, a right-wing paper will write a right-wing thing. And, you know, that's always been the case that people have been trying to manipulate the messaging since forever. But Twitter is fast enough and global enough. And, you know, the, the fact is that there are actually people on site where these news stories are happening on the front lines in Ukraine or, uh, you know, in the square in Maidan or, or wherever the news is happening. Somebody's tweeting about it. So there's never been an opportunity to get the unfiltered stuff straight from the crowd until Twitter. And what Musk is doing, he's trying to actually in, increase the trust of people into the system so that Twitter becomes a trusted platform where everybody understands and can crowdsource the decisions about what needs to be monitored or, or, or managed or not in similar way to how Wikipedia operates. Uh, Wikipedia also lets everybody write articles and then it gets moderated, but basically everybody has a chance to argue their case and the stuff gets kept or not kept based on a, a very transparent process. So he's trying to do that for Twitter and for news media, which is leaving a lot of the traditional media that has always been used to manipulate people's feelings about, let's say, Russia directly, right? So, you know, if he succeeds, it's going to be much more difficult for governments to manipulate the messaging, which is a goal that the technorati have had since they started the internet, right? That was what news groups were all about, that you could communicate directly with other people, no matter what country they're in, and find out what was really going on, rather than the massage message that somebody else thought you should know. And that's that's interesting. Now, of course, the government isn't going to take that lying down. No government is. The Chinese have their own spin for their citizens. The Americans have the spin for their citizens. Everybody wants somebody to know something the way they see it. You know, Musk is trying to overturn the apple cart there and create a service that's crowdsourced, that's instantaneous, unlike Wikipedia. And it basically becomes a source of knowledge and a source of news and instantaneous reactions. And we don't know where that's going to lead, but that, that is, I think, what he's doing. And it shouldn't surprise anyone that, you know, governments basically have always manipulated stuff. And, you know, gosh, Twitter is releasing that information. Facebook should, Microsoft should, CNN, and those other guys are also manipulated. You know, you're sitting there going like, what is, where's the news there? Everybody knows that. Well, hold on. I mean, I think it was Gore Vidal and I have to keep the spirit of Gore Vidal alive because he was always the first to note major news shifts. For example, I remember in the mid 80s, or perhaps it was a little later, um, he was struck by how many CIA and governmental operatives were crowding into the green room before he went on, you know, when he was on CNN. So remember when he famously said he never missed a chance to have sex or appear on TV. But he was always there, and I mean, I haven't watched MSNBC for a while, but I've been struck by the number of FBI and governmental guys that now occupy the airtime. Looks like there's a few hosts, and then them. But I agree with your point. As Gorvidal said, the raison d'etre of all governments was to control society, sure. But uh, Taibi has a lot of interesting things to say. Like he mentioned how he'd done hundreds upon hundreds of interviews over the years, 
and whenever he used to turn on the recorder, the temperature of the room would instantly change because, of course, the interviewee doesn't want to get caught up or caught off guard and say the wrong thing. Whereas Elon Musk was the first one where this just didn't happen. And like I said in the intro, you know, he's part Willy Wonka, part Steve Jobs, part Richard Branson, but he does not appear to care at all what other people think about him. And of course, he has a day job, he has an agenda, and we're trying to figure out what this guy is up to um, and how he's laying it out. I mean, he spent $44 billion. What's he up to? And uh, we know he's, he's trying to usurp the monopolized media, but... Uh, yeah, like- he's, not, he's not about it for himself. I, I, I feel strongly that, that he's, he's a disruptor. So he is disrupting the comfortable business as usual. Everyone pats everyone on the back and manipulates the messaging in the media. So Twitter is Twitter thing is about disrupting that information flow. Not for him. It's not like he has some major amount of information that he wants to release and he wants everyone to listen to him. And and this, I mean, of course he he likes to tweet and so forth, but it's not about him releasing the information. It's about disrupting the business as usual so that everyone else can release information. And he did the same thing, you know, with the cars on Tesla. He created the whole electric car thing and everybody else is now following. And they're like, you know, now General Motors is making electric cars. Volkswagen is making electric cars. And they're all saying, hey, buy our cars, not Tesla. We're great. We know how to do cars. We know how to do electric cars. And he's just, he's not like, oh gosh, I have to basically control the entire market. He's like, hey, everybody's buying Tesla because they like Tesla's. I can't make enough of them. Everybody else is having a go. But the end effect is that we're moving towards an electrical car infrastructure, which is completely disrupting the whole gasoline thing. And that's what he wanted to do is disrupt it. He didn't care whether he makes money personally. He wanted to disrupt it. And he's doing the same thing to media with Twitter. Hmm. Well, I can see why people compare him to Trump, because he can be extraordinarily irritating. Although I think he's intentionally turning that obnoxious trait off or down at least. But comparing him to nut jobs like Alex Jones, I mean, sure, they both shape their narratives through the lens of conspiracy theories at times. But Musk is a serious player, whereas Alex Jones was speaking to a very specific group of people. Musk is not. He's a very different animal. He's savvy. And because he's not intensely charismatic, he's more, he comes across as more subversive. And I suppose this is why I find him so interesting. And that's why I think the conversation is important. It's no comparison whatsoever, right? I mean, he's got four unicorns. He has another five companies that are not yet unicorns, but they're on their way. Everything he's touching hasn't turned to gold. Some things have to fail because if you don't risk and run risk of failure, you're never going to actually succeed. But he has a fantastic track record of turning things into into gold. But he's not trying to. He's trying to disrupt things and change the future. He wants us to get to Mars. He wants us to live in a world where there's electric uh, power generation and, uh, you know, not based on the oil industry anymore. He wants us, you know, to get to space, to colonize things, to implement space industries, to change the way we move around with a boring company and and the high speed uh, hyper hyperloop stuff. You know, it, you turn around every five minutes, somebody says Musk is into this, Musk is into that. He's got Neuralink going on, where they're actually testing on on animals, which I don't agree with, but somebody has to um, to see if you can actually create human machine interfaces, which could be the future. You know, 
science fiction has talked about this forever and he's turning it into reality. So he's he's very busy. He's got a ton of things going on and he doesn't really care what anyone thinks about him, which is why he doesn't make much of an effort to have a voice or to sound intelligent. He doesn't care, right? He's like, hey, you listen to me or you don't. I'm busy. I'm busy changing the world. What are you doing? He is not the kind of guy that you really want to sit and invite to home to meet your parents, right? I mean, he's got deeply flawed human being, but he's a genius and he is making tremendous change. And Twitter is just part of what he's doing. Well, back to the, the Twitter files, you know, and Taibi, this seems to be an interesting moment in time regarding the war as well, because uh, Taibi has spoken to this, like when he was asked, do you think the mainstream media has become complete propaganda? And he cautiously said, you know, it's getting close. And this is why so many people are flocking to the independent media, like him. And uh, once upon a time, he was allowed to say whatever he wanted at Rolling Stone, until he was not. But uh, there's places like Twitter, even though the journalists say they're going to leave Twitter, I don't think they are, because the other platforms just don't allow them to engage in the same way. It just feels so oppressive, this pro-war stance. It's certainly not felt by Western Europe. There's protests almost every day, but you don't hear about them. But of course, there's Twitter. Well, they've, made it, they've made it such a simplistic view of the world, right? You know, Russia bad, America good. But they, they were doing that in the 50s, right? Once they got rid of the Nazis, they needed another big bad in order for the military industrial complex to justify all the weapons. The Russians became the bad guys. And they've been the bad guys for literally decades. And sometimes, you know, when the Soviet Union fell, we felt, gosh, we won, and maybe we can be magnanimous in victory and, you know, treat Russia like, you know, a conquered province and just be magnanimous. And, you know, yeah, Yeltsin, you're a good guy. Eventually, you'll get your shit together and become more like us. And the truth is that, you know, that's not a new narrative. But what they're doing now is a little ridiculous because they're using the Ukrainians in order to keep the whole thing at arm's length, because for America, it's not existential. They are fighting a war which helps their military complex sell weapons, but they don't want their own children to get killed, and they don't want to actually risk that the Russians can hurt Americans. They're not really all in, whereas the Russians are really all in in this conflict, right? They think if they don't win this, then Russia will be no more. And that's why they're sending their children, uh, they're revamping their entire economy around it, which America was obviously not doing. You know, it's an unequal fight. America is much stronger than Russia, but America doesn't care about the conflict as much as Russia does. You know, that's what's going on there. And they're still manipulating back around to Musk and, and Twitter. They're still manipulating the news feeds to basically insist on their narrative. And they're doing it quite aggressively now. So people who are pro-Russian on the media are getting shot very heavily because God forbid that you should say anything balanced or, or try to present another point of view. Not, and let's be clear for our listeners, we do not agree with Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. We think it's a violation of the rights. We think it's killing a lot of children and women and men that had nothing to do with it in Ukraine. And I, I don't agree with what the Russians are doing. But on the other side, I don't agree with escalating the war, and I think they should sit down and negotiate something. Well, I still can't believe they're not investigating the Nord Stream 2 incident. I mean, that's extraordinary. That was gas to keep us warm. What if we hadn't had such a mild... They don't need to investigate it. They, they know who blew it up. In, in fairness, um, Europe has done a phenomenal job. 
in hindsight. The prices are down to pre-Ukrainian war levels. The storage tanks are all full. Europe, as usual, did it in a way that didn't penalize the, the smaller, weaker nations in, in the EU. They did it for everybody, you know, together. The UK doesn't have any storage capacity because they didn't think they needed any. So all of their gas or the gas that they're getting, they need to pass on to the Europeans because they don't have any place to store it, which means they're much more vulnerable to fluctuations in the price. However, Russia's gone down to basically zero. Or Germany's gone down to basically zero in Russian gas. They're not going to go back, but they're not going to go and just buy it from someone else either. They're going to diversify their gas. They're going to invest in things that uh, are going to ensure that they have independence in energy going forward. So solar, renewables, the Greens are resisting this, but they are going to get more into nuclear. The French are going heavily into nuclear. They've announced another six new nuclear power stations. The Italians are talking about it. So, you know, everybody's like, we understand what this war is about. And we recognize that we made a, an error in basically putting something that we really need in the hands of somebody who can withhold it from us, you know, in any circumstance. So we're not going to make that mistake again. Europe has not basically just replaced Russian gas with American LNG. They have diversified. They're doing deals with Algeria. They're doing. They're increasing their capacity, so they get it from lots of different sources. So no single power can basically hold them over the barrel again. And I think they're going to succeed with that. By the end of next year, nobody will be able to hold Europe over a barrel on energy, and that is a good thing. I mean, it's a shame that we had to force it all to happen immediately and we had to pay a lot of money because the whole thing wasn't done gradually. We're sort of working at breakneck speed because we're forced by geopolitical circumstances to do so. But at the end of the day, the results are what counts and Europe is going to get to energy independence much faster than it would have if this war had not occurred. So, you know, pluses and minuses. That brings us to Georgia Maloney and her fireside chats. I think you follow her on Telegram with these uh, weekly discussions she's having directly with the Italian people. And when I listened in last week, she's, it would appear that she spent about a half hour talking about benzene and the price of petrol and what the government is up to. Such a strong speaker, Georgia Maloney, a Romana di Roma. I'm interested in watching what Georgia Maloney is doing because... If you read the press, and this is another example of press bias, if you read the foreign press, everybody calls her a right-wing fascist. And everybody who's calling her a right-wing fascist has not read the Italian constitution, which was created in 1948, specifically to preclude that a fascist should ever have power in Italy again. Right? Italian's governments collapse faster than everybody else's because it requires consensus and fascists don't go for consensus. So the whole thing was designed to prevent fascists from actually running the country. And it works. So first of all, Georgia is not fascist. Second of all, she has to combat that bias and the ridiculous uh, statements made by people like Ursula von der Leyen you know, gosh, you know, we have ways of punishing Italy if they step out of line. You know, you work for you work for the nation states up in Brussels, not the other way around. So what Georgia is doing to combat all that is she's doing what FDR did with his fireside chats. And every week he's releasing on Telegram and various other social media platforms a video of her and what she did this week, what her government's planning to do, why she made the decisions that she did. And she's explaining it directly to the Italian people. And that's actually 
Twitter's trying to do, right? He's like, talk directly to the people. Don't have all these other people interpreting what they say and putting spin on it. George is a case in point. She appears to be a fascist to others. But if you actually listen to what she's saying and what she's doing, it doesn't sound like that at all. But you have to make an effort to listen to her directly instead of reading the paper or the Facebook or whatever it is that you wherever you get your news. You need to go direct to source and interpret what she's saying in order to get a clearer picture. Now, I don't necessarily agree with all the policy moves, but I do appreciate the fact that she's trying to explain them to the voters directly. You know, I think that she's making an effort to show that she's listening to what our concerns are. And when we don't get what we wanted, she's explaining why that decision was made and why the trade-offs happened, which is, is sensible. She's talking to us like adults, which is a, a great thing instead of the dumbed down other binary things that everybody else spouts. She's, she's nuanced. And that's, that's a good thing. Well, she's certainly having to walk a tightrope with the, uh, with the recovery funds and a lot of people who were enthusiastic about her out the gate are perhaps less so. I'm not sure. I don't follow everything that she does like you do. The world is not black and white. It's shades of gray. And, and, and she gets that because Italian compromise is at the heart of everything we do here. It's really important to understand this, right? Everyone's trying to fill, fit their narrative, right? These guys are like, she should not be supporting Ukraine. Well, she's like, I can support Ukraine because I agree in principle that the Russians shouldn't be there. I can also agree that I don't want to hurt my farmers and small businesses because they have an energy crisis. So we have to find a way to do that. We have to basically, we just got rid of the subsidy for gasoline, which meant that the price of gas went up and everyone complained. And she's like, if I don't do this, we won't have the money to basically fund the, the health service and the stuff for people who really need it because a gasoline subsidy helps everyone, including the rich. And it's not right. We should basically try to help the poorest and most hard done by. And we have to make trade-offs because there's not infinite money. We can't just print it. And, and that's sensible, right? She's treating us like adults, you know? Kids want all the ice cream and every flavor, but, you know, you have to have decide which scoop you're going to have. And you can't have all of it. It's an interesting perspective, the way she's she's managing. You could call it walking a tightrope, but it's true. If you're in government, you need to make trade-offs and decisions. You need to keep your coalition partners on board. You need to make sure that people buy your explanations for why you're doing what you're doing. And she's walking a tightrope. And to me, it looks like she cares a lot about what the Italian people think she's doing. And she cares almost nothing for what the French, the foreign press... Ursula von der Leyen, and everybody outside of Italy thinks she's doing. They're like, they didn't vote for me, so why should I care what they think? And, and that's probably a good thing. She's supposed to represent us. I think she's doing okay. Jury's still out. You're suggesting that she and Musk have something in common. Like Musk, she really doesn't care what other people think about her, which is, uh, which is refreshing. Yeah, Maloney's walking a tightrope, to be sure, with what the Pentagon wants her to do. But not sure Russia's the paper tiger everyone suggests. Anyway, either way, we don't want any escalation. But Scott Ritter, the, the former weapons inspector, said they have a, Russia does have a more powerful nuclear arsenal than we have. And gosh, I mean, if I just take 10 minutes and listen to someone like, uh, like a retired U.S. Army colonel, this Douglas McGregor, who's all over, all over the place, he's certainly no saint, or he, he was involved in the NATO bombing of Yugoslavia. 
But like many, he agrees Washington is simply prolonging the suffering of the Ukrainians and that Russia will establish victory on its own terms. I mean, this is just scary stuff. I don't think, I think Putin has conducted a limited war up until now, but he's getting put more and more in a corner because of the escalating support that NATO is giving to the Ukraine. Now they're sending main battle tanks like Leopard 2s over and the Abrams. And that's, you know, interesting. But the point is that he still has all of his nuclear arsenal. He still has everything. And he conducting what he considers and most of Russia considers to be an existential fight against everybody else. When you put somebody in a corner and they think it's existential, then you should not be surprised when they escalate and they have the capability to do so. It is a risk. You know, if he mangles the Ukrainian army some more, then the Ukraine will eventually realize that they've destroyed half of their country, that most conflicts get settled through negotiation. Having said that, I don't think they should capitulate. You know, they need to take a, a strong position. Ultimately, it should be up to the individual people who they want to be with, right? If the Donbass wants to be with Russia, then they should. If they don't, then they shouldn't. But somebody's got to ask them in a way where they're not coerced or not forced to vote one way or another. And, and those should be the condition for discussion, right? Make sure that you got the accurate picture of what the people there want. I, I really feel for them. In particular, I feel for the, the, the people that through no fault of their own get caught in the middle of this. But I, I do know that there, there's no benefit to this conflict, right? Infrastructure that's going to take decades to rebuild. You've displaced about 50% of the Ukrainian population. You've caused untold misery to everybody, including the Russians who are losing lots and lots of troops and, and so forth and so on. Now, you have to stop and think, why do they think it's worth it? Why are they doing that? And it's like, do they have no reasons? Are they all completely insane? No, they think they're actually the good guys in the fight because in every war, each side believes that they're the good guys, right? That's the whole point. You have to be able to look at the thing dispassionately and say, the good thing would be if everybody put the guns down and let's talk, let's try and figure it out. Let's try and rebuild the, the country that you just destroyed. Let's try and, uh, you know, fix the energy crisis that's there. Now, let's see if we can figure something out. Anyway, it's just such a tragedy. I'm sure that's enough war conversation for now. And we did take in some Ukrainian refugees, and uh, Francis has kept in contact with them, and it would appear that the husband has moved the family to Canada, and they are all just fine, thankfully. So let's hope next year is better than last. And we will continue to review the Elon Musk show and the Twitter files as well. And before we say arrivederci from Italy, it looks like Francis is going to have a podcast. And because he's a fellow traveler and fellow honey badger to Musk, he's going to call it the way of the honey badger, documenting 30 years of experience in high profile projects and high intensity work, discussing with fellow colleagues things that went well or badly as it were, and more importantly, how project management is an art and not just a science. So please check out baileyalexander.com where you can click on any city on my homepage and read about various countries and their cultural realities. And if you're interested, check out my book. It's called A European Odyssey, How a Boxer's Daughter Found Grace. And you can find lots of great photography that people have enjoyed over the years about my travel and the essays along the way, attempting to explain away the experience of travel and a nomadic lifestyle. So 
think that's about it. Ciao for now. Arrivederci.